Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God, Season 1, Episode 8. My name is Rick Alexander and I host this podcast. If you're getting anything out of it, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with somebody else that you think the message might resonate with, share it with your social media following, or even head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Additionally, if you want to work with me, I have a couple one-on-one coaching spots open. I also have the second cohort of my men's program starting on October 5th, where we use mythology and we use adventure and stories to understand masculine psychology and really wrestle with what it means to be a healthy, embodied masculine presence in the world today. So if you're interested in either of those, head to rickalexander.com and apply. All right, without further ado, let's talk about good and evil. Welcome to the show. I'm not 100% sure what I'm doing with this show. I think that's probably uh, important to say. So if you were one of the ones that listened to my thoughts on the book Power vs. Force by David Hawkins right as the episode came out, I just want you to know, I've, or if you saw it and haven't listened yet, and you're hearing this now, I took that episode off of my library. I unpublished it. Because as I sat with it, I felt as though there was so much more to say that I could have said better, that I could have articulated better. Part of it is the only time I've ever taught this kind of stuff or explained this stuff before is when I have visuals and I have a whiteboard and it makes it a little bit easier for me to bring the concepts down to earth. And when we're talking about consciousness, which there are so many different opinions on, and which is so elusive to us, so hard for us to grasp, because it's something like what we are, right? So it's hard to study what you actually are. It's much easier to study the things that you see, not what you're actually looking through. And because of that, I felt like I could have done a better job. So decided to take it down. Again, I don't know what I'm doing with this show, but I'm formulating a series of ideas that have been really important in my own psychological and spiritual formation. And a lot of those ideas have to do with seeking the ultimate reality. You know, Plato talked about this idea that I think I've said this on here, but Plato talked about this idea that when you the the people get out of the cave and they follow the light, they start to wake up to this mystery that the light, which is giving them warmth and insight, is somehow also the very source of their being. And I think that's the mystery that we're on when we start to explore consciousness. And you know, not that straightforward because how the hell do you explain that? And so it's something that I'm sitting with. I'm going to redo that episode or an episode very similar to that, I think, in the future. But just wanted you to know what was going on with the channels there and with what I was um, trying to put forward. I still think that there's so much good information in it, but I think I could do it better. And um, in order to hold myself to that standard, I decided that this week I would decide I would uh, try to do an episode that is actually somewhat more difficult, I think, than even consciousness, be- only because there are so many of our 
we're so predisposed to the ideas that I'm going to talk about today, which is good and evil, and how do we delineate between them? What are they? What is the role that they play in our lives? And then what is the role that they play in the universe at large, or at least in the world, right? And you know, when people use the concept of world, I use this concept of a lot, it's not a thing. It's a concept, right? It's a concept that includes something like the co- the cosmos, but it's like all of the, it's not just all of the things, it's all of the ideas in the world, right? So the world is like not just the physical universe. It's also all of the concepts, these concepts of good and evil, the ideas that we have, the predilections, the animating forces that sit below the surface of our lives, which is a little bit of what I think of as good and evil as. And all of those are contained in the world. So just something interesting. When we talk about world, it's something that doesn't exactly exist. It's a reference point for talking about the totality of all of our ideas and and what we are. So when we move into things like good and evil, there's a lot of ideas here. We We are very strongly opinionated about good and evil. And if you look at the culture today, you're seeing that, right? But what's interesting is what exactly one person is going to think is good and what another person is going to think is good are actually really different. I've talked about the difficulty on here is when you remove God, which is like the ultimate good in some sense, when you remove that concept or that idea from your philosophy, then you start to swim around in in a much more difficult to navigate landscape. And I think some of that is, if you're familiar with Sam Harris's work in the moral landscape, I think when when you see people debate him who debate for something like the concept of God as necessary in order to develop a moral landscape, it's interesting because, I mean, you can agree with him or not agree with him, but I just think it's interesting because he doesn't have a, have a point. Like you'll notice he just says, that it's obvious to us what is evil. And and he takes like the worst thing it could possibly be. He's like, if you could imagine the worst possible scenario, the worst conditions for life, and use that as a point of evil. But I think it's worth pointing out that when you actually have to make a decision based on good and evil, that's where the line actually gets really, you know, really uh, muddied. In our everyday life, trying to delineate between good and evil without an ultimate reference, is much more difficult, I think, than it is conceptually or abstractly. Well, here's what happens, right? Somebody who, a lot of times people who develop something like PTSD, they don't develop it necessarily because of what they saw, although that definitely happens, like sometimes near misses can cause like a lot of trauma. But a lot of times what happens is that they actually see something in themselves that they don't like, right? And so here we have to we have to delineate the idea of ethics and morals, right? And so one of the things that I say often is that the reason you see morality as a teaching come out of something like early Christianity is is not because they were teaching it was called the way, like in the first two centuries of Christianity before uh, it really started gaining steam. It was just called the way, like right after the, you know, right after the crucifixion, there's like this small kind of gathering of people who are meeting, who are talking about these ideas, who are talking about this Christ person. And all of that comes off of the apostles, right? And what's interesting is right now we tend to reduce Christianity to moral teachings. Like if you go to church, if you go to Sunday school growing up, you're going to be taught a lot of moral teachings as the backbone of the religion. But 
I think something worth reflecting on is that that isn't how it happened. It wasn't morals first, then religion. It was, I'm going to serve the ultimate good. And then the way that I organize my behavior around that good is what we call morality. And so when you pull that ultimate good out, this is the case of people that would argue for saying that, no, you actually need something like a God concept in philosophy, because when you pull that ultimate good out, there's nothing to arrange your behavior around. All of a sudden, everything is relative. And we'll talk a little bit about this idea of moral relativity, that this is the culture that we're in now. And I think it's actually based on a really good impulse because things do change and people do change and culture does change. And I think that there's a desire in people to inherently update their operating systems with that culture so that it makes sense. Because, you know, one of the things that I noticed and this is not to throw shade, but it's something interesting to think about is the way that like I was raised in a Christian church, for example, if you think about the rules that I was to follow, it was kind of interesting, right? It's kind of interesting to raise somebody in 1990, like they're a third century BC Jewish man, right? That's, that's pretty interesting. And so one of the things that I make a case for is like, I think we have to have real conversations and wrestle with what does it mean to update what's culturally acceptable, even if we have a God image, right? Even if we continue to believe in this God. But so that's what morals are. Morals are a way of organizing your behavior in service to an ultimate value or an ultimate good. And ethics are more like contextual Right? So ethics are within a certain context, this is how you are to act. Right, They're not morals. And, and I think we conflate this a lot a long time. And this is what I'm talking about with PTSD. Right, So in the military, we have handbooks and we have rules of engagement. And rules of engagement tell us how to kill people, when to kill people. And oftentimes what happens is people are operating within the confines of ethical demands like in the military, but then they sustain what you might call a moral injury or an injury to the soul because they transgressed against something like the ultimate good. That's within them, that they know. And this is one of the interesting things is I I think one thing that's happening with God images because they are updated over time, right? We see different movements right now, the new age, we have the new age movement. And one of the things that's happening is that people are becoming aware of the inherent good that they have running in them. There's a really good quote that I wanted to talk about by Solzhenitsyn. He said, the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And part of what like the ministry of Jesus was doing, for example, was to take right this this sacred space and say that it was democratized to show people that you are that temple. You are that temple that people are trekking to, that you have all these rules about, right? So he was an embodiment of the underlying ethic of the Old Testament that was being taught. And I think if we just keep taking that further and further down the road, what we start to see is that the divine is being democratized, that it's everywhere, that it's you and that it's me. And I think that the the Western traditions that we have, like the he- the Hebrew traditions that came out of the ancient Near East, I think are specifically trying to tell us that. I had a conversation with Rob Bell. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a, he used to be a mega pastor and he left to be a writer and a speaker. And one thing that's very interesting about his work is like he was talking to me on this Zoom call and he was saying, one of the things that happened to me that people couldn't understand is that I took the teaching seriously. And so what he noticed, he was like, well, I'm, I'm doing this thing every Sunday where I am 
where I'm ushering people into this temple. And the more seriously I take this, the more I realize the whole world is a temple. And I think that's what we're working toward. I think that's the new Jerusalem at the end. But one thing that's tough is if you start waking up, this was part of what I was talking about in the consciousness episode, before the people around you, it's actually a pretty tough process, right? It's pretty difficult because people are like not very open. And I think that that is a, there's a, evolutionary bias for not being very open because if you're too open if the border is just wide open the other tribe can just come kill you so it's deeply ingrained in us to be protective of tradition and be protective of what's ours and i think that that's good but i also think that we have to wrestle with what does that mean to be in a world that is even more connected right that is that is open so let's talk about the west and the east tactic of good and evil so in the west we try to vanquish evil, right? That is that is our approach. In the East, they try to reduce the tension of evil. I remember in one time in church, I heard somebody talk about the, the yin and the yang, and, and they were saying, you know, a yin-yang is actually saying that there's some good and evil and evil and good. And I remember hearing that and just thinking, well, that's interesting. I actually think that that might be true, and I'll explain why I think that, but that's a pretty oversimplified and terrible definition. But you know what's interesting is something like the East threatens the West if they say, well, there is some redeeming qualities in evil, by the way, and you're trying to vanquish it. So you can see where the tension builds between the two cultures, really between the two ideologies. If I'm trying to vanquish evil, and in the East, they're trying to reduce the tension between the opposites... Like we're both seeking wholeness, right? But in very different ways. And so you can see where the rub would happen. But let's talk a little bit about the shadow of those two, right? And by the way, the yin and the yang, I think it's a much it's a much better way to understand that as organizing and animating energies, something like masculine and feminine dynamics, not male and female, right? Masculine energy and feminine energy and the way that those two work together to create the whole. That's what the, the, the yin yang is trying to say, the yin and the yang, right? And um, you could also think about it like chaos and order. Like there, there are multiple ways to think about it, but good and evil is that's difficult, And here's why. Let's talk about the shadow of the West. Because what's good and what's evil? Like, how is it that you actually know? Other than just your what you've been told or other than just your first sort of reaction to something, how do you actually know that even what's bad in the present moment isn't ultimately good? And how do you know that what's good in the present moment isn't what's ultimately going to lead to your destruction? It's very difficult to know because it's not like those two things don't happen all the time, right? People are choosing things in the present moment all the time that they deem good because they make themselves, they make them feel better, they make them feel good, and actually though they're, it's setting them on a course for destruction. There's habits like this that happen all the time because something happens, and this is one of the things that I noticed when I started thinking seriously about this idea, is that when you create the category of good you automatically create what's evil. Like if, you na- if you're living in a, in a dualistic and binary world, which we are, and you say, well, that's good, then something else must be evil. And unfortunately, I think one of the shadows of this is that you're always being caught in what's evil because you're always showing what's good. You're always saying, well, that's good. And so just by proxy of creating the label, you're finding yourself ensnared all the time in evil. And I think one of the problems with 
trying to reduce the tension, like in the East so much, between the polarities of good and evil, is that you might end up overlooking some stuff, right? You might end up allowing some things into your consciousness that actually are evil, right? That are actually um, going to take possession of you in some ways. And I talked in the last episode I did on the East, like when I talk about possession and demons and things like that, I, I'm... I tend to talk about them neurologically, right? And I talked about the idea of a hungry ghost. In my book, I talked about Harry Potter's Dementors, how those show up in our everyday life. And when we see them personified, I will tell you, one of the reasons that they scare us is because we know they're real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not that they're a being, not that they're this evil being. I think it's more it's more apt to say it's an energy, it's an energetic thing, but I don't know, right? Like, I, who knows? But I think that it's, one of the reasons that when we see something like a demon on TV, it scares the living shit out of us is because we're constantly letting demons into our life all of the time, right? We're constantly doing things that are taking possession of us. They're making, feel, making us feel like we have to have those things. And as we give ourselves them, they're taking from us. So we have less of our essence, less of our soul, less of what's good about us remains after we give ourselves over to those things, right? So these are... To say that that doesn't exist is like to refute neurology, right? We can, as I said in the last episode, we could just look at dopaminergic pathways and show how easily it is that something can come get its hooks in us and, and motivate us and impel us from the inside out. And if that's not possession, I mean, I just don't know what is. So in uh, theological circles and philosophical circles, they talk about the problem of evil. So the idea being, if God is this good thing, if God's all good, omnipresent, omnipowerful, right, knows everything, can do everything, then why the hell is there evil, right? That's the problem of evil. And you'll see a lot of philosophers that want to take the, that want to prove that God doesn't exist will take the problem of evil because that seems to be the thing that's perennially not understood. And so all these different theologians and stuff have taken a crack at trying to understand or trying to answer the problem of evil. Now, one thing that I want to say about that is that that question to me, the problem of evil, the whole philosophical framing of it feels incorrect. It feels like you're not honoring what you are because what you are is human. What you are is finite. You're not omnipresent, omnipotent, right? So you're not all-knowing and all-powerful. Certainly not when you are entrenched in egoic consciousness, right? And I talked about this in the second episode, so go back and listen to that if you want to understand the dynamic between the whole and the peace, the whole and the finite. But you're by trying to answer that question, you're trying to think as if you're the whole, Right? So that presents a problem in itself because you do not know. Like, Not only do you not know, but you don't have a category for knowing. It's so far beyond what you are that if that thing exists, you aren't able to answer that question. Right, And the reason I say this, and I'm going to get into this toward the end when I talk about how do we deal with this on an individual level in our lives, but the reason I say that is because there's been so much what I would consider to be evil that in the final analysis was not so, right? So here's an example of this show called A Thousand Names for God, and I talk about God a lot, and um, it's the priority of my life, right? It is the highest value of my life is to try to understand this love, right? Not the romantic love, but I mean the very source, the very fabric of our existence as love. I'm trying to understand that because I think as, well, 
what happens is as we try to understand that and as we grow closer to that, it transforms us into it. And so once you taste that, you're that's the road you're on. You know, I, I, I talked about it in the consciousness episode, which is no longer. But the idea being that when you taste these other levels of consciousness, there's a part of you that is you, there isn't a going backwards. You know, this is the idea with growth in our lives. We can't I can't go back to how it used to be. And so once I realized, like once I felt in my bones, once I saw, once I intuited, because what happens is as you move closer to this source, as you move closer to something like love, as your consciousness rises, your knowing transforms from an intellectual knowing to this embodied intuitive knowing. And as that happens, once I had this recognition that what we were was spiritual beings going through a temporary human existence, you couldn't take that away from me. You know, you could tell me anything and I'm like, totally, I got it. I even like when I when I hear atheist arguments, I'm like, man, I've been there, but I can't go back there because I just feel what I feel and I know what I know and I see what I see. Not to make anybody else feel that, but when you have these when you have these dates with destiny, when you bump into God in some way, it's going to shift you and change your life and it's going to change the trajectory of your life forever. And it doesn't really matter what you call that word, right? That's why I call the show A Thousand Names for God. Call it whatever you want, but once you touch it, once you, once you drink the living water, your life force is going to be shifted and the direction of your life is going to be. And if it weren't for evil, I wouldn't ever be here. You know, it was all of the darkness in my life, the confusion, the the seeing things on deployment, seeing things in the world and, and seeing things in my own past and not being able to make sense of them, feeling victimized by life. It was all of that, you know, the, the really terrible things that have happened to me that forced me into seeking the light. Because if it weren't for that, what would my, what would my motivation have been? And so I have this sense, though I can't it's too hard because evil is such a big problem in our world and it's so encompassing that I'll talk about, well, I'll move into that next. But one of the things that's interesting is I have this intimation that in the final analysis, all evil can actually do is be reduced to the finger pointing at the moon, right? You've heard that before. We often mistake the finger for the moon, right? The idea of all of these pathways is to point us to the thing, point us to the moon. It's not so that we will fall in love with the finger that's actually pointing us to the moon. That's the trap that I'm talking about. This is the trap of modern religion sometimes. This is the trap of falling in love with your guru. It's like, what are they pointing at? That's what matters. And so, yeah, in the final analysis, I just wonder, it's like, well, that's what it seems to be on an individual level. I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't feel to me, and even though now we're in this place of immense confusion, it doesn't feel to me like evil can actually win because it's actually self-defeating, right? So think about goodness as being whole. We can have philosophical uh, debates about whether wholeness is good, but if you feel whole, I promise you that you feel good. We don't have to have a lot of debates about it if you've actually felt this sense of wholeness. And so then we think of evil as the the fracture. We think of evil as the splitting apart of the whole, right? And so what happens is as humans, I've talked about the idea that we become what we mimic and identify with and what we worship, what we give our attention to, right? This is how our psychology works. And so if you give your attention to idols, for example, this is why it's one of the Ten Commandments, you become that piece, you know, you become that lifeless piece 
rather than becoming the whole. And the genius of coming up with a monotheistic religion, right? The genius of that is that then you model yourself and your attention off of the whole and you become more whole. And so when we're talking about evil, we're talking about anything that takes away from, degrades, or divides the wholeness, right? So that's hate. That's the goal of hate. The goal of hate is division. So as long as we're divided, we're way weaker, right? Because when it comes to wholeness, you have integrity. And when you have integrity, you have strength. Think about like the integrity of an airplane. You want a plane to be integral. You don't want it to break off into pieces because if it breaks off into pieces, its ability to do its job, its strength is going to be reduced. And so the primary goal of hate, and you're seeing this in our culture hard right now, is division because through division it can conquer. The thing that I'm trying to say here though is I don't think it can conquer in any ultimate sense because it's self-defeating, it's self-dividing, it, it's taking away from itself eventually. There just isn't anything left. And that is the goal of something like nihilism, right? When you think about nihilism, the root word annihilation, it's like when you when you are so deprived from the good that you think there can be no good and it would be better to have nothing at all. That's the ultimate goal of evil. That's the goal of division in any sense at all. It is to continue to divide until there's nothing left. And so if you identify with systems of division and you identify with things that divide, that's also going to be the fate of you because that's what happens as humans. That's what we do. We we scan our environment for relevant information. We elevate the importance of certain things. Those are the things we give our attention to. We mimic those things until we take them and assimilate them as part of ourselves. And so part of the problem with any sort of like dopamine pathway, since we've already talked about this, right? You know, you might have heard like 20 years ago, like that's evil, or you probably hear that now in the right circles, like some figure, some dopamine thing, right? Like porn or something, where people say, well, that's evil or alcohol. And I, I'm in the camp of reduce the tension between them because as long as you scapegoat something as evil, then you are impotent to fix it in yourself, right? So I'm not in the fan of doing that. But you can see the symbolism that's being, that's guiding their thought process because what they're saying is that thing's going to divide you. It's going to, you're going to give it all of your attention and you're going to have less of yourself over time and you'll just become more and more and more and more divided, less integral, less like God. So Thomas Aquinas, one of the great Catholic philosophers in the uh, Middle Ages, had some thoughts on evil. He said, because existence is good, evil does not exist, right? So what he's saying is that because existence is good, evil is a deprivation of what's good. It's nothing in and of itself. And that's an interesting thought as well. It's like, okay, so because life is inherently good, we're being here is inherently good, then what we can experience then is a lack of what's good. And um, I think there's something to be said for that, though the 20th century certainly put a stake in that argument. Um, but what he said is that because God is ultimately good, we cannot hold God to moral standards. So this is how he solved the problem of evil. And, and I hope you see what I'm doing here. Because remember, the problem of evil is, if God's so good, then why does so much evil exist? 
What he's saying is because God is a transcendent ethic, right? A transcendent value, something that transcends our world of time and space. We can't hold something that transcends the world of time and space to the world of time and space because the two things are separate. And that's part of what I think I'm trying to say with the argument that, well, you can try to answer a question as if you're God, but you're not God and you don't have the categories for that kind of knowledge anyway. So it seems to be fruitless to to pull God down into some sort of moral standard is really difficult, not least because you don't know how anything is ever going to end up. So to recap, you might not actually know what's actually good and what's actually evil. This is part of why, though I cursed all of what I would call the evil or the bad or the darkness that was in my life in my late 20s, ultimately, it actually turned out to be incredibly good. I don't, evil is just so impotent to to do anything besides divide itself into nothingness. And so one of the other things he said is we cannot rationally desire evil, right? So what, what he's saying is only something that seems, we can only rationally desire something that seems good but turns out to be evil and so the idea there is that people are desiring what they think is best for them and i do think that that's probably the case i think that people are always doing what they think is best everyone is doing the best that they can with the tools that they have and it's very hard for us because we have so many ideas of good and evil and this is what i mean You create all these categories of what you think good is. And those categories are based on how you were raised and where you were raised and the the ethics that governed your family system, not necessarily the morals. And then you go out in the world and you start holding people to those standards, then you're going to continuously be let down. It's actually only once we realize everybody's actually doing the absolute best that they can. I think this is the best thing that Thomas Aquinas said. They're doing the best that they can, And that might be evil, right? That might end up not so right. But we have to give people grace. That's our job. And I think that's what the religious path is teaching us, right? That's why we have compassion. That's why compassion is a central tenet in both Christianity and Buddhism, right? It's the idea that we give people the ability to figure this thing out. And I'm seeing this in the world today. It's like we're, we're going back and forth and we're like, well, they're the problem. They're, you know, it's all this us and them, this us and them argument based on what you think is good, based on your limited experience of existence and your the ethics in which you were raised and the family dynamics in which you were raised. And you're looking out in the world and you're trying to hold everybody to that standard. And one of the arguments I'm trying to make here is that actually you probably don't know You probably actually do not know what's ultimately good and what's ultimately evil. So if we can give each other a bit of grace to figure it out, you know, rather than just cancel somebody right away, rather than just not hear them out, rather than censor other arguments or things that don't agree with us, perhaps we bring all of it to the middle and we have discourse and we realize actually we're both stuck in the same human experience. We're having a a very similar thing that's happening to us here. We both popped up in existence at the same time. So maybe if I take my foot off the righteousness gas pedal and I give you and I extend you grace, I can figure out what it is that you think and maybe I even learn something. Maybe I realize my categories for good and evil are actually not what I thought that they were. But all of that is going to take a lot of, this is why I'm so adamant about the spiritual path, if I'm being honest, because compassion is a central tenet. And I think when I look at our world today, we're at each other's throats constantly. And it's like, where does this road go? This division goes to annihilation. That's how patterns work. 
And not only that, you know, if I could give you a recipe for how to be the most unhappy, for how to continuously find friction in the world, it is to expect you out of everybody else. And I do want to say that I'm not trying to make a case for the fact that evil doesn't exist, right? Not only did the 20th century prove that, but I've just seen it in my life over and over. Like I do, like I, I think to try to downplay evil is incredibly naive. But I think also, remember this, I, this analogy I said of like, if somebody were to hit you with a stick, you wouldn't get mad at the stick. Well, I think people are possessed by really bad ideas. I think that anger, emotion, unregulated emotions, really bad ideas are possessing people. They think they have, like, I have these ideas. It's like, do you or do those ideas have you? I would say for most of us who are, especially for those of us who are projecting good and evil onto categories constantly, it's likely that those ideas have you. And so, again, we can extend the human grace and still recognize that the thing itself is absolutely atrocious, right? Like, think about the Taliban right now. Think about Sharia law. Like, just imagine being a woman right now and realizing that at 12, you can no longer get educated. Just imagine realizing that at 12, you could be sold to be the, the wife of a 45-year-old man who does not give a shit about you because of your property. Evil exists, there's no doubt about it. But we have to we have to approach it in a way. This idea in the West of us completely vanquishing evil, what you find is that the, uh, the broken pieces keep popping up on us, right? This is the Joker, right? When you watch the Joker, I've done a podcast on the archetype of the Joker before, but when you watch the Joker, what's happening there is that a piece was outcast from the whole and it comes back to burn the whole damn thing down. And this is why you can't actually outcast what you don't like. You can't actually outcast evil. In its grace, this is why I'm trying to make a case for grace, it is grace that invites the outcast piece back into the whole. Remember all of these moments in the New Testament, these moments where Jesus is talking to the adulteress. This is my favorite story, or one of my favorite stories, so I talk about it all the time. But where he's talking to this adulteress, she's about to be stoned, and he's like, yeah, great, everybody here, like, uh, um, as long as you're without sin, yeah, throw the first stone, let, let's get her killed. And everybody leaves because everybody is deeply steeped in sin themselves, and we all know it, right? And so it's actually, and then him looking up at her and being like, well, neither do I judge you. Right. This invites the broken off piece back into the whole. The African proverb that I, I talk about a lot is a child who is rejected by the village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. And, you know, this is happening because patterns are patterns. This is happening constantly. Like it's happening on the cultural level. Right? This is the Joker archetype. And we see this all the time. School shootings. What, what is that? It's the peace that has been neglected, rejected, that we tried to vanquish with our righteousness, coming back and burning the whole village down, right? And also, you're going to experience this in yourself. If you have an internal tyrant, well, it's not like you are only identified with a tyrant. You're also the victim there. Some, the tyrant is victimizing some piece of you, and that piece of you will keep you from feeling whole. It will keep you feeling disintegrated. And that piece will form the root of your self-sabotage. And this is the role that grace plays in our life. Grace says, look, I, you've, I, I know you, you came up short of the mark, but look, we're in this together, so bring it in. Right? That's what grace is. That's what grace does. That's what keeps these uh, broken off pieces from becoming some sort of pathology.
So I do think that evil is real, but I do think we have to have real conversations about how we're dealing with it and what it means to us. And look, if your faith is Christian or if you believe that story or, or you follow the Christ myth, Christ is saying that, listen, the substructure of this entire existence is grace itself. That's the message. So again, in my estimation, if we're going to take these stories seriously, then we have to ask, what does that actually mean for our lives? And how do we deal with the things that we have to confront in our lives, especially the things that we don't like? And I want to be clear here, because I would never condone any atrocity, right? You look at the 20th century, a lot of people use the Holocaust as an argument for showing that God does not exist and that evil is definitely real. I would never condone that thing, but what I would say is amidst this absolute deprivation of good, amidst these atrocities and this evil, you can find God. You just got to know where to look. It's being intellectually lazy to say that there was no good anywhere. It's like, no, there there was. And historically, what we understand of God is that he's on the side of the oppressed. That's constantly true, right? The whole entire Old Testament is God being like, hey, you're not caring for the disenfranchised part of the population enough. And then in the New Testament, where we have an embodiment of God, right, as the myth goes, he comes in and he says, look, you're not caring for these people enough, these outcast parts of society, and that's why I'm spending my time with them. Right, so there is this idea that that God is deeply concerned with those that are oppressed. And so if you read the oppressed from that time, i.e. Viktor Frankl, right, you can find out exactly where God was and exactly how love reacted. But I also think that we have to be open to other things, right? Because if we're too simplistic, again, of our definition of what God is, we might, we might miss out on what it is that we're actually talking about. And so I have a question for you. The question is, can God actually be whole if God doesn't include the totality of existence itself, which would be the shadow too? And I ask because... One way that you could solve the problem of evil, and, and there are certain psychologists and philosophers that do, is just by saying, well, God's not only good. God's also the evil and also the darkness. And, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about. It's so much different than what all of us have been taught. But I would also say that all of us have been taught to cling to the good and to reject the evil. So it's hard to know anything about it. And this is where I think an Eastern process can actually be really helpful, right? Because in Buddhism, for example, things aren't to be feared or rejected, they're to be understood. It's like, well, what's going on there? And that's why I like taking the psychological approach, because you can look at people that are immensely evil, and you can get mad at the stick, or you can ask them, what's going on there? Who, who's holding, what's the thing that's holding the stick, that's pulling the levers, that's impelling the action? That's the problem. That's what we got to talk about. The person's just in it like I am, just gripped by a different idea, obviously. But I had this moment one time on a psychedelic experience where I had like essentially undergone a complete ego death and I was in the, what, what they would call the astral plane and I was like looking down at the earth and I had this sense like I could see, and this is common, you'll, 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 for people that have mystical experiences on psychedelics have, have experienced this before, but I could see that, I could see the evil and the good all working together as the whole. And when I was detached from it, I couldn't see it as evil as much as I saw it as darkness. Like, and, and it's interesting because that goes along with my idea that I'm saying 
like well how do you know that the that what's evil is is actually evil in an ultimate sense right imagine that your life here is um i don't know if i want to go down this road but yeah let me just do it imagine if your life here you know there's all these ideas of simulation that we're in a simulated reality and so imagine if you really you are actually the one playing a video game but what you feel now and what you are now is actually the character in the game and then imagine that you die and then you just wake up and you're like oh holy crap that was a crazy game let me go play the next one right imagine if it's like that i'm not saying it is i'm not saying it's not i'm just saying imagine if it is well if it's like that and imagine that you actually take the lessons you learn in the game with you in some way. This is something like imagine that there's a soul and then there's a you in the physical plane and that the soul is gaining wisdom based on what you do in the physical plane. I'm just saying it in different words. Imagine if some scenario like that is true, then you wouldn't know that, you know, in that case, what, what you consider to be evil, what was considered to be heart-wrenching might not actually be when you have a different perspective. Or a, And this is what I'm talking about, why you can't, you can't hold God to your standard of finite intelligence, finite knowledge, because you don't know where you come from. You don't remember anything before you were born. You don't know where you go after this. Again, we have ideas, intimations, beliefs, all of that, right? But nothing nothing solid. And so because of that, I think that well, it's, it's a little bit understandable. And then what's more interesting is you have a group of people who have had these certain experiences where they did seem to elevate above it all, where they did leave their finite egoic consciousness behind. Because one of the things I experienced in that moment was that the entire universe was my body. And that's also common in mystical experiences. And so I'm looking down and I'm seeing all this evil and this good I'm seeing them work together for the whole in some way. Now, what's fascinating is that when I come back, like in my human world, right, this happened years ago, I, I don't, evil's still evil, right? Heartache is still heartache. Like I'm in the human experience. And so it's like that level of analysis is somehow off limits to me. But one thing that I would say that we all take on faith, if we have faith, is the fact that there is another perspective that does make that true. Right? That is the only way you could tolerate something like living in a world where cancer happens and the Holocaust happens and we're incredibly awful to each other all the time and heartache happens and we're of the nature to get sick and die. It's like, how do you have faith in the good when that's your scenario? Well, you just do. You have faith that there's a bigger story unfolding and that you get to be part of that too. That's what we take on faith. So it's the same idea. So just something something worth asking yourself. It's like, can God be whole if God doesn't include the totality of existence? And this is one of the critiques that Carl Jung was was trying to put forward, though he came up against a ton of opposition, as you can imagine. But in a book like Ion, where he writes about the Christ and the Antichrist, right? He's essentially saying that phenomena, that pattern wouldn't be whole without the Antichrist coming back. The reason the Antichrist coming back is because that's what happens to unincluded pieces. A piece gets left behind and that piece will end up coming back. And so the pattern wouldn't actually be complete if there was no Antichrist. So when we're talking about the whole, we can't use the word whole and only talk about things that we like. Those things seem a bit antithetical, at least to my my current understanding of them.
So just some things to think about in your life. And I want to end with the asking the question, well, what about on an individual level, right? Because even if I had that experience from the astral plane, and even if I have this immense faith that what is ultimately true is inherently good, so much better actually than I could even imagine, I still have to be here, right? I still have to be here embodied in my finite existence where I am all of the things that I mentioned, right? Where I am going to experience heartache. I am going to become, I'm of the nature to become addicted to things, right? All of this, like I have to, I have to deal with my regular life stuff, right? Like the Zen tradition says, we are here in the world of 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think if we take the philosophy that I've been laying out and the different points and we ask, well, how do I apply that to my life? It does require faith, right? It requires trust because you have to trust that even if you're going through something that seems bad or seems evil, that there might be an ultimate good somewhere along the way. And maybe what you're seeing is actually what you need to grow. That's something else worth considering. And if that's the case, then this is what I've been working with a lot of men on, is when darkness enters your life, maybe, and this sounds antithetical, especially if you've been raised in the West, but maybe you show some gratitude for it, right? Like, I think about my own struggles with different addictions and the darkness that that kind of casts me into and the, the feelings of shame and all of that. And then I think, but imagine if I didn't have those. Imagine if I was no, imagine if I was able to just continue to, act in ways that were self-harming, that weren't good for me, that weren't good for other people, and there was no repercussion, no guilt, no darkness involved. It's like, well, that actually sounds like a pretty rough world because where would I take that road if it felt so unencumbered, right? So it's gratitude for my darkness that's actually showing me where I'm off the path. It's actually showing me where I'm not right. So I have this deep gratitude for pointing me to the moon. And let me ask you this. What's the one thing that your demons aren't expecting you to do? It's to love them, right? See, there are some games, I heard Jordan Peterson say this one day, he said there are some games that you lose just by playing. And one of the things that I would say is this idea of trying to vanquish evil might be one of those games. Now I don't know, right? But I also look at teachings like from Christ where he says, love your enemies. And I realize that if you take that teaching seriously, it dissolves the category of enemies. 